Well, we step back into Revelation this morning. You're going to learn real quickly why I didn't want to teach this on Easter Sunday. Because we're going to be looking at angels and demons this morning. And specifically, uh, demons as they come up out of the abyss in Revelation chapter 9. It's an extraordinary passage, but it's also incredibly sobering. So, I'm going to ask you to take a minute and pray with me that we would really enter into this with the right heart and uh, the right focus, the focus God wants us to have, so that we pull out the application that He wants us to have. So, let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thank you for uh, stringed instruments and for drums and for voices that can lead us in worship. Thank you so much that you inspired songwriters to write those words down, things that we can use to praise you. We do ask that you would receive that as praise from our hearts. Father, we're taking on um, a difficult text, uh, not just because of the content, but because of the implications with it. So I ask for everyone in this room, myself included, that we'd be focused upon your principles, the reasons you had John write this down 2,000 years ago, which are very pertinent to our future and those that we love. God, we ask that you would give us the eyes to understand and, and the hearts to understand and the ears to listen closely and the mental capacity to process what's going on here. And we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise for it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Not sure what William Shakespeare's theology was. I remember learning about this guy called William Shakespeare when I was in English class in high school. I didn't personally care a whole lot for his writings, but we were assigned, and so therefore we had to study his material. He has a particular quote that I'd like to start off with today, and some of you will be familiar with it. Look up on the screen. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. Remember that? Some of you that studied William Shakespeare? I think he had some fairly sound theology, not sure of his particular bent. I would disagree that we're merely players on the stage. You are created beings of God, and you have a destination and a purpose. But if all the world's a stage, we should talk about what Act One was. Specifically, as we look at this theology or doctrine of Satan and demons and angels, and specifically fallen angels. If Act One was Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, and successful as it was, causing them to sin and rebel and turn against God, then Act 2 was God promising a Savior. God appearing in Genesis chapter 3 and saying, there will be one who will redeem mankind. He will crush the head of Satan, projecting out to the future, to the arrival of Christ. Satan countered with Act 3. Act 3 was fallen angels coming and cohabitating with men and women. You can read about that in Genesis 6. I won't go into it myself but trying to destroy the earth by fallen angels intermingling with women of the earth. God counteracted with Act 4, the destruction of the earth 
through the flood we call the flood of Noah, in which he redeemed a group of people, Noah and his family, saying, I'm going to have a race of men whom I can redeem. Act 5 would be God raising up out of that lineage the nation called Israel. And Satan in Act 6 coming against Israel and attacking them as a nation. No nation on the face of the earth has known the assaults that Satan has brought against that nation. Israel failed and did not glorify God the way that they were intended to do. So Act 7 was God bringing his son on the scene, Jesus, to redeem mankind. And in the midst of Jesus' arrival on the earth, you see hell unleashed. That stage of play began from the moment that Christ was announced with Satan coming against trying to kill him through Herod all the way through his life. You see, the 40 days of temptation meant to turn Jesus away from God. You see it in the crucifixion. But Jesus conquered all, redeemed all, and rose up on the third day as we celebrated last week's Sunday. So that act was conquered. The final act, Act 8, is the one you will learn about today in which Satan reappears on the scene in a manner never known in the history of the world in which hell literally is unleashed on the earth. I call it Act 8. You can call it whatever you want. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 9 this morning. But let me refresh you first before we get to Revelation chapter 9, where we've been and how we've gotten to this point just with the trumpet judgments. Because we've taken Palm Sunday away to teach something else and Easter Sunday, you might forget what we left off on three weeks ago. So Revelation chapter 8, let me take you back there. You'll see, first of all, that we had seven trumpets from seven angels. The first trumpet that we found is hail and fire. The third of the earth burns up. We find a third of the trees burned up and all the grass, green grass, is consumed. So the second trumpet is sounded and something like a great mountain. Remember we talked about an asteroid, a, a great meteorite hitting the earth. And specifically, Scripture says, as a result of that, a burning mountain into the sea, a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the creatures die, and a third of the ships on the surface of the sea are destroyed. Then there's the third trumpet. The third trumpet was another meteorite or asteroid. A great star fell burning like a torch, and a third of the rivers and the springs, all the fresh drinking water, was ruined. And then the fourth trumpet sounds, and it says this, the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened for a third of it. So we left off on this verse now, verse 13. This is where it ended. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You might remember that that was an especially graphic warning. When I told you the word was kradzo, a screaming, woe, and it screamed it out loud so everyone on earth could hear it because of the intensity of what was about to come. And three times he said it, for the three remaining trumpets. And the woe specifically, it says, is against the inhabitants of the earth. You see that underlined there, those who dwell on the earth. Specifically what that means is those who live for the things of the earth. 
those who live for the things of this world that are drawn to it, as opposed to being drawn to God. So this announcement is to those who live for the things of the earth. What we're about to see now is a partial exposure to hell to understand what hell is like. God sends it to earth for a period of time, a, a glimpse of it, we'll say a sampler's platter of it. It's fascinating, but it is incredibly sobering. So this fifth trumpet that's about to blast unleashes an army that is sent forth from the abyss. Let's look at Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks there in front of you. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now that one right away catches your attention because it's a personal pronoun referring to a star. This one is not an astronomical event. This specific star, in the way that it's written in the Greek, refers to something that has fallen in the past and remains in a state of fallenness. So the word that's used here is peptotokoto, and it means specifically an action that happened in the past that has ramifications in the future. So he's giving a personal pronoun saying the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. So we see right away, first of all, this star has a key given to him. And number two, the star is seen performing an action. So the way this word star is used here is not of a meteorological event or an astronomical event. It's referring to a person, calling him a him, someone who fell. The star is given the key to open the abyss. Now, I notice that this fallen one does not have complete authority. This one who fell sometime in the past, has a continuing action in the future, cannot do anything until the key is given to him. So therefore, he's limited in his actions. He can't carry out his action. He can't open the door until the key is given to him. Could this be Satan? Most likely not. Most likely, this is one of the ranking demons who answers to Satan, one of the fallen angels, one who has some degree of authority in the hierarchical structure, but not Satan. And the reason I believe that is, first of all, this one has authority over the abyss by being given this key. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that Jesus takes a lock and key and chains and sends a powerful angel to capture Satan and bind him with a chain and throw him into the abyss. It's very unlikely that God's going to give Satan the key to the abyss. I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but I believe that to be the case here. I'm going to, before I take you further into this, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about angelology. I studied this a lot in Bible college and, and since then, and I want to give you just a glimpse of what we talk about when we talk about the angels, the fallen angels. Currently, we understand, in his current state, Satan has access to God. We see that in various places in Scripture, but specifically you see it in Job. When Job was being accused before God, Satan was doing the accusing. And you see it also in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's called the accuser of the brethren. So he has access to God. I'm going to put a chart up that I want you to study for just a minute and let you process what's going on here, and then I'm going to explain it to you. 
What you see here is a breakdown, just my version of it, of what happened with the angelic host. So in heaven, you've got the rebellion of Satan and one-third of heaven, one-third of the angels, we're told, against God sometime in eternity past. Now, the good angels you'll see over on the right side and the evil fallen angels over on the left side. And as a result of the evil fallen angels, three classes or degrees of punishment are dished out. First of all, the first most egregious fallen angels are placed permanently in this place called hell, and they're being held there until the day of judgment. They're so vile, they're so wicked, that they cannot be set free to roam the earth as some other fallen angels do today. These particular ones are the ones that I refer to in Genesis chapter 6 when you look at the description of what happened during the time of Noah. Those are the ones whom God said he would lock away. Then you see the second degree of angels, and those would be the ones who specifically are temporarily confined in this area you're going to learn about today called the abyss. And the abyss you need to think of as being different than hell. The abyss is an area in which they're temporarily confined and they will be set free. And then the third group of angels would be the ones who roam the earth today. According to the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, we learn that there are evil fallen angels who freely roam the surface of the earth today, although we cannot see them. So let me give you a couple of verses to refer to this first group that I talked about, those who are permanently locked away. Look up on the screen at 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, Scripture teaches that God chooses to keep them there in eternal bonds because they're so wicked holding them there for the great day of judgment. Look with me up on the screen at Jude 1. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So you've got these demons held in hell because they're so vile and they're so wicked. And then we find the others who are roaming the earth who actually Jesus encountered during his time, and I believe still roam the earth today that various individuals encounter, Jesus encountered some demons who actually implored him not to send them to the abyss because it's such a horrible place. Look up on the screen with me at Luke 8.31. They, meaning the demons, were imploring him not to command them to go away to the abyss. Now, just to help you get a framework in your mind of what's going on here with the angels, in Revelation chapter 12, you're going to see that there's going to be a war in heaven. A, and that's a strange thought in itself, that heaven would actually have a place for a war. You're going to see Michael the archangel and the good angels have battle against Satan and the fallen angels. Look with me up on the screen at Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, got that all straight in your head now? 
I know, it took me years to understand this stuff, but I'm going to condense it in five minutes. So, we've got the first group, those who are held in eternal bonds unto the day of judgment. Then you've got the second group of fallen angels who are being held in the abyss, who are going to be released during the tribulation, which is what you're just about to discover. And then you've got the third group. Those are the ones who roam freely with Satan in what Scripture calls the prince and the power of the air. So I'm looking at this text and I'm saying, the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Who would do that? Who would give this powerful angel the ability to unlock this shaft to the abyss and set them free? Well, to understand that, first you've got to understand what the abyss is, the bottomless pit. That's what Scripture calls it. Specifically, we're told that the beast, the Antichrist, will raise up out of the abyss. So you get a picture in your mind of how rotten this guy is. Look at the word for abyss, abusos. Depthless inferno. Abyss, a deep, bottomless pit. Now, it's not the pit that's been locked. It's the shaft to the pit. Has some form of a door over it. Somehow, it's sealed. So specifically, I've got some points. If you've got your study notes, this is where you're going to want to catch up on this one at, and they'll be up on the screen as well. What is the abyss? First of all, it's the temporary abode and the prison of a portion of demons where they wait their eternal and final judgment for the lake of fire. Number two, there's various descriptions for it. We find that in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 and Luke 8. One calls it zophos meaning blackness, utterly black. Jude says it's filled with demons. It's completely black and filled with demons. Some who are being held under eternal binds, chains, some who are going to be released. Luke 8.31 says it's the place of unfathomable depth. Number three, Place of judgment for fallen angels for rebellion against God. It is utterly black and filled with demons. It's a place of bondage, a prison, get this, from which even Satan cannot release them. A key has to be given out in order to release them. Ultimately, all the demons, all the fallen angels will be thrown into the lake of fire. But for now, God has a specific purpose for each of these categories. Notice what I said earlier, that the Antichrist at one point rises up out of the abyss. Look with me up on the screen. Revelation eleven seven. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Apparently, Jesus is the one who gives the key to this fallen angel. How do I know that? Revelation 1, 8 says, I hold the keys to what? Death and Hades. Jesus is the one who holds the key, and because of God's sovereign purpose, at this point in the tribulation, he gives the key out, and this fallen angel performs this act. Throughout Scripture, we constantly see that God is the one who grants authority. So in this spiritual act, God grants the authority for these to be released, and look what happens when it happens. Verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. 
I'll be very clear, it is not my intention to scare anyone. But what we're about to look at is very scary stuff. That's why I say it's very sobering. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit. Picture what it would be like if somewhere on the earth someone held a key to every penitentiary in the world and they unlocked the bars, the jail cells, and let out every one of the world's most hardened criminals all at one time. Free to roam the earth. No longer incarcerated. Every prison is opened. And he opened. That specific three-word phrase tells me this one did not have to be talked into it. There's no coaxing that took place. They're very quick to release these fallen angels. And it says, like the smoke of a great furnace, like a big door has been taken off an oven and put aside and everything billows forth. Such a massive volume of smoke that it literally fills the atmosphere. The word here that's used for air, it says the sun and the air were darkened is to be taken literally. The word that's used here is A-E-R in the Greek. We spell air, A-I-R, just meaning that which surrounds us. A-E-R was very specific to the oxygen of the atmosphere. So what this verse is saying is it's so dark, spiritually dark, and literally dark, that it blots out the sun, and there's a darkness that covers the land. The atmosphere is filled with this putrefying smoke. So the darkness is literal, but it's also spiritual. And it's very intense in these days of Satan's activities. The demonic activity that takes place here will literally be seen by men. And the description that you're about to see will help you put in context what that means. According to Ephesians chapter 2, our earth is completely consumed with an atmosphere in which in this atmosphere there are fallen angels and there are good angels who are doing battle that we cannot see. During this period of time, when the abyss is opened, there's a literal description of what the demons look like and I believe they will be literally seen. So when this door is taken off this oven and the smoke belches forth, there's more than just smoke that comes out of the abyss. Look at verse 3. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Right now, you guys look about like the 9 o'clock service did. Oh, man, what am I walking into here? <laughs> Just wait. It's going to get more graphic than this. Out of this billowing smoke comes this advancing army, and their description is such that they resemble locusts, but he didn't say they were locusts. As a matter of fact, I don't think they're even in the insect category, and I'm going to show you why. I believe they're probably considerably larger. Out of the smoke came locusts, advancing like this cloud. And these are something other than ordinary insects. Let me show you why. They've got a special task. First of all, insects, locusts, are 
are drawn to green things, aren't they? They're insects. They want to eat green things. Well, these ones have been told they're not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing. They've been given power. What kind of power are they given? As scorpions have power. Now, we're not told they're scorpions. We're not even told they look like scorpions. He said they're like scorpions. They're ferocious. They have the power of scorpions. Now, when you picture a scorpion, I lived in the Southwest. I have a very clear image in my mind. You picture a tail curved up and erect with a tip at the end of it, a stinger. When we get into the future verses, you're going to see that's what he's describing, but that's the only part of a scorpion. He says they have the power of a scorpion. They're told not to hurt the grass or any green thing or any tree. This is food that they would normally eat. But they're told, don't do the normal thing. Do what is abnormal. Leave the green things alone. Go for these individuals. Specifically, the individuals who do not have the seal of God upon them. Now, why is that specifically important? You learned in Revelation chapter 7 about those who had the seal of God put upon them. I believe what's going on here is God is doing what he has to do to cause men who do not belong to him to repent and turn towards him, to reject the former way of life and turn towards God. So God takes the restraints off. The Holy Spirit is no longer holding back. Holy Spirit's currently restraining evil, we've learned. But no longer is there restraint here. We learn this in 2 Thessalonians 2.6. It says this, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. So the Holy Spirit's holding back the attack of Satan. His desire to launch this attack is being restrained until this period of time. So it says, Only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember that verse from Revelation chapter 7? What did John see? Let me put it up on the screen for you. Revelation 7, 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So for sure, the 144,000 are being protected. I also believe anyone else who names the name of Christ during the tribulation would be sealed as well and set apart. I think specifically the ones that they're attacking are the ones who are worshiping the beast, worshiping Antichrist. In other words, they worship Satan. And this indicates to me that these ones coming up out of the abyss to do this can't do what they want to do. Why would they attack those who belong to the Antichrist? They're demons. But instead, they're told to attack those who belong to the Antichrist. So these limitations are being put on them. Limitations upon the demons, and they can't do what they want to do. They're told who they can hurt, how they can hurt, and how long they can hurt. So let's look at verse 5. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those, days, God, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. God 
is prohibiting death. Why? My answer is going to sound strange to you. Because of his mercy. He's allowing them to experience the torment of hell prior to going to hell in hopes of turning their attention back to him. Think about when I taught on the book of Exodus and the plagues that came upon Egypt. What we discovered was each one of the plagues that God used was intentional in trying to turn man's attention towards him. But what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh hardened his heart every time. And what you see here is God's mercy trying to drive them to their knees to get them to turn back towards him. Now they may cry out, but it's only temporary like Pharaoh. Mostly they cry out in pain. God wants to humble man so that man will repent. We're told here that they were not permitted to kill, meaning they have the capacity and they have the desire, but God's not giving them the opportunity. He does not give them permission. Satan held death in his control at one time. Did you know that? Jesus took it from him. Look with me up on the screen, Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the resurrection of Christ defeated the power of death. Satan held it, Jesus took it from him. That's why he said, I hold the keys to death and Hades. So Satan desires to kill along with the fallen angels, but cannot. The restraints are put upon him. And it says in the verse, but to torment them for five months. You know the specific lifespan of a locust is five months. I don't think this is referring specifically to the insect, the locust. But interesting that locusts come into hatching in May and they live into September, a five-month span period of time. So we've got this five months of intense spiritual, physical suffering, five months for the last opportunity for people to believe before their heart becomes so hard that they completely reject God. You'll discover the next time in Revelation 9.20 that they are pushed beyond the brink and those who still live upon the earth, their heart is so hard they refuse to acknowledge God anymore. And that's when all the chains come off. So it says this last awful sentence in that verse. This is what John wrote. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. More accurately written in the Greek, it says they eagerly desire to die. As a matter of fact, specifically it says they pursue death. They chase after it. I thought to myself, what would take someone to that point where they have to chase after death? And I started thinking about a couple places in Scripture where there's individuals who said they longed to die. And what was going on? What were the circumstances in which they longed for death? You remember Job, our friend in the Old Testament? Job said that he longed to die. As a matter of fact, here it comes, Job 3.21. I long for death, but there is none. Why? His children had just died. He lost his entire family. He was emotionally a wreck. He was totally messed up. The second one I found was in Job 7.15. 
My soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. What was going on there? His physical pain. Remember, his body's covered with boils at that point. If you're familiar with the story at all, Job was going through this horrendous experience. The third one I discovered was Jonah. Jonah said he longed to die. Let me read it to you. Jonah 4.3, Please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. What's going on there with those individuals? Emotional trauma, physical trauma, and spiritual trauma. Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And he said, I'd rather die than do what you're asking me to do. So we see here individuals who are identifying with this group of people. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually, they've been pushed beyond the breaking point. And they're chasing after death. But God will not allow them to die. Every single theologian I read, every single commentator, and myself, after studying the text, I agree. Individuals will try to commit suicide, and they will not be successful. They will injure themselves, and for five months, they're going to have a foretaste of hell. They're going to experience demons treating men as men will be treated in hell. For eternity, they get to experience it for five months. There's a description coming now that literally just defies imagination. If you were into Greek mythology, you'd look at that and say, well, that's right out of Greek mythology. If it wasn't for the fact that it's in God's word and you take God's word literal, black and white, the way he intended for us to do, you'd look at it and say, no way. But when I see this in his text, I say, this defies imagination. So let's let the text say what it says, and here's what it says in verse 7. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. I told you I lived in the Southwest for a while. When we were living there for a few years, probably my first week there, I encountered something that I never expected to see. It's something that I'd never known actually lived. And yes, they have scorpions and tarantulas there and some horrible spiders, but I saw something, you can Google yourself later today and look at it, it's called a tarantula hawk. And this individual is an in insect with a five to six inch wingspan. And he is really weird to look at. This big wingspan, pretty cool, huh, Preston? <laughs> yeah, have you seen him? No, okay, you're going to later today, I'm sure. Um, this tarantula hawk has a long stinger out in front of his body. You have to be, first of all, to kill a tarantula. And this is a pretty big insect. Very long, four to five inch legs. Now, the first time I saw it, I'm outside with my sons, who were pretty little at this time. We're playing near a sandbox. And Derek pulls his hand out of the sandbox, and he's got a sting in the top of his hand. I thought that this hawk that I'd just seen fly by, which is an insect, it's really a wasp, had just stung him. Learned out later that it was a scorpion that he had been bitten by. But this tarantula hawk came by, and the only reason I knew it was because I heard this buzzing. 
And I thought somebody had a remote control helicopter. And I turned around to see this thing and whoa, it's cruising right by me, only at four to five miles an hour. That big of a wingspan. Now that's in nature today, a pretty weird image. This goes way beyond that. This is just incredible description. I thought my wife's greatest fear was bats up until this point when I read this. This is just amazing to me. So let's break this down and see what John saw so we can get a better picture of this. This is the last few verses of this text for today, but I really want you to understand it as you take it away. So first of all, John says the word like constantly. He uses the word like eight times. As a matter of fact, the word he uses is homios, and it means similar. It just means it's like this, but it's kind of like that. John can only give us an approximation. It, their faces are like horses or, or like men and bodies with armament, but they have something like a crown. So let's break it down. First of all, he sees these powerful beings that I believe to be bigger than insects, and they're armed for battle. And he says they're like horses. That's the first description. So that means they're warlike. They're powerful, they're defiant. Their horses in the war times were straining at the bit, pushing forward. That's the word that's always used when you talked about a war horse. And he says they have faces like men. Whenever you see that used in Scripture, it's talking about intelligence, meaning they're rational beings. They can process information. And they're crowned. Specifically, they're crowned with what's called a Stephanos crown meaning the crown of victory, which means they're invincible. They cannot be conquered. They can't be defeated. And then he says they're covered with long hair, and I have no idea what that's about. It just like bristles maybe, perhaps the hair on their legs. I don't know. And specifically then it says, <laughs> who knows, all right, I'm speculating. And then it says, teeth like those of a lion. Well, in Scripture, when you see that, it's talking about fierce powerful and deadly. And then it says, skin is like a breastplate of iron. If you know anything about the Knights of the Round Table and you think back to the, the coats of mail, the iron mail that they wore, which was hammered steel, it was intended that it could not be penetrated by a spear because of the way it was layered. This is what he's talking about here. This breastplate of iron had one specific purpose. It was to protect the vital organs, meaning they can't be destroyed. They cannot be killed. There won't be any skeet shooting going on, okay? They can, how do you kill something that comes from the place of the dead? You can't kill it. It's invulnerable. And here's the last description. He says, above all things else, they fly. They have wings, and they sound like horses rushing to battle like the sound of chariots. When I was in Bible college, I had a particular professor who was emphatic saying, I'm dogmatic about this, that's a helicopter. That's a modern day helicopter. Okay, well, that's his interpretation. I would say, you don't have to place modern warfare into this. You just look at it and say, it's what it says. It's a spiritual event. It's spiritual forces. But John is saying, I literally am seeing this and this is what they look like. And the last description is this. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tail is power. And we're not told they're scorpions. They have tails like scorpions, 
and in their power is the sting. This is what I know from the power of the sting of a scorpion, especially the most deadly ones. It's much like an epileptic seizure. Individuals who are bitten with the most deadly scorpion bites begin foaming at the mouth, and the pain is horrendous. The veins in your body feel like they're on fire. Persons bitten by scorpions actually go into a seizure to the point where there's a partial paralysis taking place and they begin grinding their teeth. Whether that's describing this or not, I don't know, but this is a Middle Eastern man describing a Middle Eastern scorpion. Not sure if that's what he intended, but then he gives us one more insight into what's going on here, and it's the last one for today. Verse 11, they have as their king... Over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these. Now, real locusts, real insects, don't have kings, do they? So we see a group of beings here who have a ruler over them, and specifically called Basilios, meaning a foundation of power, a sovereign, a ruler. I think it's best to look at this angel of the abyss as one who fits into the scheme of the order of ranking under Satan, someone who answers to Satan. It's best to view him in this way as a high-ranking demon, specifically because he's released from the abyss. The key has to set him free. We know Satan roams the air, so we know this is not Satan. This is Apollyon or Abaddon. In the Old Testament, Abaddon means the place of destruction. In the New Testament, in Greek, Apollyon means the destroyer. So if you put the two together, you have the destroyer from the place of destruction is the ruler over these individuals. And so John wraps it, wraps it up by writing what was told him. The first woe is past, meaning this one's done. There's two more to go. And by the way, there's seven more bowl judgments after this. And each one keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So you look at it and say, how can anyone survive this? Remember up to this point, earthquakes, fires, Grass consumed, water ruined, sea life killed, volcanoes erupting, meteorites hitting the earth. And now this. This confirms what Jesus said to us back in the book of Matthew. This is what he said, Matthew 24, 21. This will be a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So here's three points you can take away with you today as you walk out the door thinking about this material. Today, while we sit here, this army that's described is currently locked away in the abyss, waiting, as you're going to discover next time, for not only the month, not only the day, but Scripture says the hour. Jesus has specifically appointed the hour when they're going to be released and he knows when it is. This judgment extends only to those who do not follow after God. And it extends to the natural life. 
God reserves judgment over the spiritual life for himself. This is a judgment on the natural life of men. The third thing I want you to think of is this. If you have trouble believing that God would ever carry out something like this or that he would ever create a place like this, I only need to point you back to the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, 21. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 25, 41, sorry. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you notice who's that prepared for? It's not prepared for men. It was not intended for man. It was intended to take those fallen beings who rebelled and lock them away and punish them. It was not intended for man. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Unfortunately, men who rebel against God end up in the same place according to the authority of Scripture. So, here's an application for you. It's hard to find an application in this text. This, I, I, I look at this a few months ago and then this week again studying it intently and saying, God, what am I going to pull out of this for this church? Here's my reminder. Thank God that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades, not Satan. He alone has redeemed you. Satan would destroy you. Let's pray. Father, this is admittedly a sober moment in which we feel in our heart the intensity of of what will happen. And my mind very quickly goes to those whom I know that don't know you. And this room, this auditorium is filled with individuals who have relationship with people who are far from you. So Father, here's what I ask for my brothers and sisters in this room. As we leave here today and we go out to our cars or we go out and enjoy the snacks together, um, God, remind us of how intently you want to turn men back to you. And so you give us not only this in evidence in writing, but you show us what you're going to do in the future to turn men to you. Father, restore that passion within us that we would see individuals whom we know that are not in relationship with you, the desire to talk about redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Make us unashamed to do so, Father. And we'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise. We ask you to be with us today as we leave this room and the things we take on this week. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have an excellent week.